I want to just be honest with you guys, man. My, my heart is uh, crazy heavy this morning. Um, it has been all day yesterday, uh, just the message and just um, just kind of where, where God's taken us. And, and so I don't want to, I, I want to lean into that. I don't want to lean away from it. You know, I was, I was so heavy last night. All the kids went to, um, according to the kids, went to the campground down in Cheryl's Ford and paraded around with a thousand other people and they didn't get kidnapped, so that was good. But I just, uh, I stayed, I stayed home because I was just heavy. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to kill the party, you know. And, um, and I just sat out on the back porch and, and I just prayed and thought and went through different things. And, and, you know, there's, there's a part of me sometimes when I feel the heaviness of God where I almost want to fake it and just be like, everything's good, everything's all right. But I also don't want to be full of it. So I realized that the heaviness um, the weight I felt coming from the scriptures and what I would be teaching today uh, is, I think, the hope that someone will hear the message today and lay their whole lives down to Jesus. My hope is that there are people in this room and people at home and people that, that will watch this message later through the week or, or their lives and that they will see maybe for the first time in a very real way the extreme faithfulness of God and that they might see how much God truly loves them and they might see how much God truly desires to be with them and how much God has done for them that they would solely give their lives over to him. And, and that's my prayer. And so I just wanted to tell you up front, that's my hope and my prayer. And, and that for every believer in the room and every believer at home and every believer that might watch this, that, that we would know by the end of the message today that, that if we have a million doubts about life, that we would never doubt the faithfulness of our God. And, and I, I, wanna, I wanna continue this conversation that we're having about the spiritual realities behind the physical realities that we're seeing played out in the earth, primarily around Israel. And last week we talked about uh, the, the spiritual reality behind the hatred, the eternal deep hatred that the world has forever had against Israel and why that is. And today I, I want to look at the judgment, the spiritual reality behind the judgment of Israel and ultimately the salvation of Israel. A lot of times we don't maybe know this or think about this, but the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. But they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and are under the judgment of God at this moment. But in God's great wisdom, power, goodness, and love, God can judge and preserve his people simultaneously at the same time. And that he can use the difficulties of this world and ultimately uses the, the Satan's plan and the Antichrist and uniting the world's armies to destroy Israel. Ultimately, he uses that to bring about their salvation. And so I, I wanna look at the spiritual reality behind Israel's relationship with God and God's relationship with Israel. And we can see through this 
God's faithfulness, his love, his mercy, and his patience. And if there was ever a message that I'm gonna hold on to in my own life, it's this one. Because this isn't Jordan's message. This is scripture's message, and specifically the message Jesus gave to his people. I, I wanna go to Matthew 21. Uh, there's a parable that Jesus gives. And a parable is just a story that points to deeper spiritual truths. And in this parable, Jesus uh, is focusing on Israel and Israel's relationship with God and God's relationship with Israel. And he depicts the reality or the truth of that relationship. And ultimately, that relationship that Israel has to God is one of disobedience, one of sinfulness, one of idolatry, one of rebellion, and ultimately one of rejection of God. But God's relationship with Israel is one of love, mercy, grace, and patience, and faithfulness. And so as Jesus is, is there uh, in the, the, the city of Jerusalem, he gets into a conversation with the religious leaders, specifically the ones who in just a little while are going to have him falsely arrested, falsely convicted, and then murder him on Golgotha. And Jesus is, is giving this parable to teach them and to give them one last warning and caution prior to these things taking place. But in this parable, Jesus gives us the history, he gives us the context of the present and the future. And I think if, if we can understand the heart of this parable, then we can understand God's heart towards his people. And so I want us to see this. In Matthew 21, 33, Jesus begins the parable by saying, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. So this is depicting what we, what we read and studied last week. This is depicting the reality that God chose Abraham with the heart of, of bringing out of Abraham an entire nation so large that it couldn't be numbered, and that ultimately God's purpose and intention for raising up Abraham to bring about the nation of Israel was to ultimately bring about Christ, the Messiah and the Savior who would bless the whole world by dying on a cross for the sins of all people burying them in the grave and leaving them there upon his resurrection and then making it possible for the sins of the world to be forgiven and all who would call upon Jesus would find salvation. That that's ultimately the heart and the intention and the purpose of why God raised up Abraham and why he brought Israel out of Abraham and why he blessed Israel the way that he has through the thousands of years. And he, he, he gives this parable and he says that, that God raises up Abraham, he raises up Israel, he takes them into the promised land, he guides them, he leads them, he provides for them, he gives them everything uh, that they would need and then they get to, to experience uh, the, the, the benefits of, of knowing and being in a relationship with the God who created them. And he says that, that he leases this to the tenants. This is very important because this is, this is the heart of this and the heart of why God gives us so many details around Israel is because we can see in the life of Israel a reflection of our own sins and relationship with God. 
Because what the, the, when, when Jesus puts that term lease in there, he's making sure that we understand that he's referring to the idea, the same thing that Romans 1 pulls out about all people and all sins is that ultimately God created the universe. He created the world. He created every living creature. Revelation says that everything that lives, everything that lives in existence lives only because God's will and God's power. That you exist in this world because God thought of you, God loved you, God formed you in your mother's womb and allowed you to participate in his universe. And the Bible says that he is worthy to be worshiped, worthy to be praised, worthy to be glorified, worthy to, to live for, worthy to die for for that purpose alone. The fact that he created the universe makes him worthy to be worshiped. The fact that you exist at all is evidence that God loves you and desires you and wants you to be in this earth. And he says, but you have to remember that you aren't the creator, that God is the creator, that you didn't create yourself and this universe is his, it's not yours. <coughs> So the heart of what, what Jesus is, is, is making known to us in this parable and specifically to Israel and to the religious leaders is that they became God's people because God chose them, God created them, God brought them into the nation, God gave them the promised land, God drove the enemy out of the promised land, God rid the promised land of the enemy, gave it to them, blessed them, but that it was never theirs, but that they were always his. And this is important that we understand this reality because what Israel does to God is the same thing that every human being born into sin has done. Ultimately, Israel said, thank you for existence. Thank you for saving us from Egypt. Thank you for providing for us and leading us through the desert into the promised land. Thank you for driving out the enemies. Thank you for giving us cities that we didn't build. Thank you for giving us vineyards that we didn't plant. Thank you for pouring out love and blessing and mercy on us. But at the end of the day, we want all your stuff, but we don't want you. We want your creation, but we don't want you to be our creator. We want the universe you made but we don't want the maker of the universe. And so what happened is Israel did exactly what you and I did in sin apart from Christ before we knew Jesus. We rebelled in our hearts against God. Romans 1:18 details this reality for all of us that we chose to worship and desire the creation more than we did the creator. And so as he continues this parable, he says that when the season for fruit drew near, that he sent servants to the tenants to get his fruit. He sent some people back to the vineyard to collect the fruit. The deal was in this day and age, in this culture and in this context, was that you get to benefit. The, the, the master, the lord of the house, the, the owner of the land, he built a vineyard, he built a tower, he did all this. Then he left and he lets you benefit from it but that ultimately you're gonna give him some of the fruit so that everybody shares in the power and the beauty of the moment. But what the people did, these, these evil tenants, uh, instead of sharing the fruit with the master who blessed them abundantly, and, and instead of, of giving and doing and serving him as they should, as he deserves to be served and deserves to be honored, Instead, they tried to steal what was not theirs. They tried to take the vineyard for themselves and cut the master and the owner out of the picture. 
This is ultimately what you and I have done with God and ultimately what Israel has done with God. And he says, instead of honoring him and giving him the fruit, it says in verse 35 uh, that the tenants took his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned another, and he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So this is Jesus in a parable telling this story that he sent servants to collect the fruit, but then the people who were tending to the vineyard beat them, persecuted them, stoned them, and killed them. And everyone that he sent, that's what they responded. That's how they did. This is depicting the generational history of Israel with God. That though God raised them up, though God made a great nation from Abraham, though God freed them from Egypt, though they saw the mighty hand of God at work in their freedom from Egypt, though they saw him provide for them in the desert, raising up manna out of the ground and bringing water out of rocks and leading them with a fire and, and with a cloud of smoke and being God that he extended his great and mighty hand as Moses writes in Deuteronomy 32, that God revealed his great power and his great love for them, that they saw it with their own eyes, but ultimately they still rebelled against God, disobeyed him, rejected him, wanted to remove him completely from the land and serve other idols and other gods and commit adultery and idolatry against the God who created them. Now, it would be very just for God to just wipe them off the earth and start over again. But God loves them. God deeply loves them. And so instead of rejecting them, when they rejected him, he started to send prophets into their midst. People telling them of how much God loves them. People, uh, prophets would go in like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah and Elijah and Elisha and Samuel, that, that he would send these prophets and these prophets would do everything in their power to take the message of God and the power that God gave them to prove God's faithfulness to them and to, to call them back home and to tell them to repent of their sins and to turn away from the false gods and to come back to him and to serve him and to love him and to let him be their father and for them to be their sons and daughters. But prophet after prophet after prophet showed up in their midst, telling of God's love, telling of God's power. But what the people of Israel did was beat one, persecute one, arrest one, stone one, and kill another. That generation after generation after generation, as God sent prophets and sent leaders into the midst of Israel to tell them of his faithfulness and his love and his mercy towards them and begging them to come back to them, they stayed generation after generation in rebellion towards God, killing the prophets, killing the teachers, killing the leaders, killing anyone that was trying to bring them back to God. And you would still think in that moment, after everything God had done, after hundreds of years of blessing, hundreds of years of favor, hundreds of years of guidance, hundreds of years of, of provision, hundreds of years of fighting battles for them, hundreds of years of protecting them, hundreds of years of proving himself to them, that after they kill all of the prophets and they kill all of the leaders and they, they put them in jail and stone them to death and torture them and hurt them, you would think after hundreds of years of God being good to them and then being evil towards God that he would finally just reject them and cut them off. But he doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, he sends his son next 
Jesus continues in the parable. It says, finally, verse 37, Matthew 21, verse 37, it says, finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is their heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? So Jesus, in this moment, though they're not fully aware yet, they get, they get there by the end of the parable. But in this moment, this is Jesus looking this generation in the face, Israel and its religious leaders. And he says, all throughout the generations, for hundreds of years, every generation, God has sent prophets. Every generation, God has sent teachers. Every generation, God has, has called you home but you've rejected it time and time again, killing the prophets. And Jesus said, in God's massive love for you, he's gonna stop sending prophets and instead he's gonna send his only begotten son. That he's coming. And a lot of people, we don't realize this a lot of times or we don't think about this, but Jesus Christ did not come at first for you and me. Jesus came for Israel. Jesus came for his people. Jesus came for the Hebrews. Jesus came for them. His heart was to see them accept him and then he would reign as king over Israel and shine the light into the dark world, then saving us. That's why Jesus said multiple times, I've only come for Israel. Remember when the woman came up and, and, and begged for healing and Jesus said, I, I've, I've come for Israel, I'm not there for you. But she cried out in faith and he healed her anyway. But Jesus came for Israel. And Jesus is, 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 is beginning to, to prick their hearts a little bit to get them to understand that he has come not to judge them, not to condemn them, but to save them because they, like you and me, are already condemned in our sins. This is the famous John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so when Jesus came, he didn't just come empty-handed. Jesus showed up in significant power. He showed up by the virgin birth. He showed up according to all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. He showed up in the power of the Spirit of God. He showed up and he proved to them that he had power over the wind and the waves. He told the waves to calm down and they listened. He told the wind to stop and it listened. He told Lazarus' his dead body to come out of the grave and it did it. Jesus came with authority. Jesus came with power. Jesus came proving himself to the world and to Israel and to the people before their very eyes, thinking, hoping, believing that when they see the faithfulness of Christ and they see the authority and they see the power and they see his willingness to lay down his own life for them, that at some point they would see all the power, they would see all the authority, they would see the message of love, they would see the message of salvation and that they would give their lives over to him. But they didn't. In fact, the very ones he came to save are the ones that hung him on a cross and killed him. And so Jesus asked the question in the parable, what's to happen to the tenants who killed his servants, stoned them, persecuted them, hurt them, killed them, and what are they to do ultimately when they kill his own son? In verse 40, he asked the religious leaders that question. 
He says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruit in their seasons. Then Jesus agreed with this statement. And he says this, he says in verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting a verse from the Old Testament in his heart and what he's, he's saying is this last call to them. He says, God is bringing his kingdom upon the earth. God is bringing salvation upon the earth. God is bringing heaven down to this earth. But the cornerstone or the foundation of the kingdom of heaven is going to be the son of the living God. Jesus said, I am the cornerstone. I, I am God's son and I have come to die a death that you deserve so that you could have a life that you don't deserve. He said, I'm coming to pay a price that you cannot pay so that you can live the life that you, you, you never could experience. He says, I, I, I'm doing everything in my power. I'm here to give the gospel. I'm here to share the good news. I'm here to share the love of God. And ultimately, I'm here to put my money where my mouth is. I'm gonna lay down my own life. I'm gonna take on the sins of the world. And I'm gonna die on a cross. And in my death, I'm gonna bury sin in the grave. And in my resurrection, I'm gonna defeat death. And in my authority and my power that the Father gives me on the other side of that, I'm gonna use that to save this world from the hounds of hell and Satan himself. Jesus says, that's who I am. That's what I'm here doing. And he says, but I'm the cornerstone. And God has told you through the prophets that you killed that you would reject the cornerstone and that by your rejection of that cornerstone, of that foundation, your rejection of the Son of God, that it would bring judgment upon the people of Israel. And he warns them time and time and time again. And they don't listen. They don't listen. They reject the call of God yet again. And even though Christ told them exactly what was about to happen, they killed him anyway. In verse 43, it says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This is, this is the, the good news, bad news. Bad news for Israel, good news for you and me. Bible teaches us Old Testament and New Testament very specifically in Romans 8, 9, and 10 uh, that, that God would raise up the Gentiles, the pagans, that's you and me, that God would, would make it possible through the death of Jesus that anyone, anyone throughout history, doesn't matter your race, your culture, your background, doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor, doesn't matter the sins that are in your life, it doesn't matter, well, it doesn't matter oh, the struggles, the weaknesses, it doesn't matter. And nothing matters about the life that you live. Jesus said that I'm so merciful, I'm so good, and I'm so loving, and I so desire to have sons and daughters for the Father that anyone who calls out to me will be saved. And it doesn't matter where they come from or what they've done. At any point in their lives, when they recognize the sovereignty and the beauty of the gospel and they see Jesus for who he is and they call out to me, I will save them. Like there's a power in that. And what's so cool about Romans 9 is Paul says that part of the reason God is doing this is the hopes that for the last 2,000 years, 
since Christ that Israel would look into the church, would look into the Christian church and they would see the hand of their God and they would grow jealous and because of that jealousy, come back to God. That's what God says, right? That's like ninth grade uh, girl strategy right there, <laughs> right? I'm telling you, I, I always immediately got interested in a girl as soon as she got interested in somebody else. I was like, nah, I don't got time for you, Tiffany. <laughs> Starts talking to Doug. I'm like, what are you doing, Doug? That's my girl. <laughs> There's a power in that. There's a beauty in that. That God, God, God's plan the whole time was to save the whole world, to save anybody that would call out to him. And what I want you to see in this is that all throughout the Old Testament, he sent prophets and they rejected them but God never rejected them. They rebelled, but God never destroyed them. No matter what they did or how evil they got, no matter the idolatry, no matter the murder, no matter the sin, no matter what they did, in God's faithfulness, he always kept a remnant. He always kept some holy. Even Elijah cried out to God and said, no one is serving you. No one loves you. Everyone's gone. Everyone's dead. Everything's over. It's all failed. And God said, absolutely not. I've reserved 7,000 who've never bowed their knee to an idol. God's faithfulness, he preserves. He can judge, preserve, and save all at the same time. And so for 2,000 years, 2,000 years, Israel has been under the judgment of God because they killed his only son. They murdered his only son. Jesus promised them that this would happen. In verse 44, it says, and the one who falls on this stone, him being the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The, the reality of, of what happened to that generation because they killed Jesus is significant. But even though they killed Jesus, so I just wanna make sure that we don't miss this. They killed prophet after prophet after prophet. God never stopped loving them. God never rejected them. God never broke his promises. God always kept a remnant. God always gave them mercy. God was always patient. God always, always was faithful to them. But now, after they kill Christ, after they kill his only son, after they saw the power, the authority, and the goodness of Jesus, after they saw that there was no sin in him, there was no deceit in his mouth, that he was gentle yet powerful. That after they killed him, you would think that that would be the final straw, that God would then wipe them out, that God would finally shut them down, that God would finally allow them to be utterly taken out as they so deserved. But because of God's faithfulness, he continued to open up salvation to them. He continued to preserve them. He continued to save them for their final salvation. And in a few chapters over in Matthew 23, and I'm, I'm gonna read this quickly, Jesus leaves the parable, and then he just tells them point blank with, with no secret meaning, no parable, no proverb. He just tells them the reality of who they are, the reality of what they've done, the reality of what they're about to do, and the consequences that they'll face because of it. And I want us to see this in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, 
You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your fathers, you snakes, you broader vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You know, hell is a funny thing. There's like a two and a half hour podcast about hell and they're debating over it. I can do that in two minutes. Hi, my name is Jordan. Welcome to the Jordan podcast. Hell is real and you don't wanna go there. Doesn't matter how real it is. Doesn't matter all the details of what might be down there, up there, wherever it is. None of that stuff matters. All you need to know is that hell is real. It was built for Satan and his demonic angels. It was built for the rebellious and for the sinners. Jesus Christ already paid the price for you. So the way that you will escape your final destination, which is hell and your sin, is to give your life to Jesus Christ. The reality of hell is a very, very real thing. Jesus teaches it, Jesus lays it out, and he says, ultimately, if you reject Christ, this is what you will face apart from that. And so as he comes to this, he's explaining to them, how will you escape from hell if you reject me? He goes on and he explains to them in verse 34, because of this, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and persecute town after town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come upon this generation. And so what we know, what, what Jesus prophesied multiple times, that what would come up on the generation that actually killed him would be utter destruction. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. The Roman army came in with, a, I think, a million-man army. They killed 10,000 Jews in a few hours in one moment. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed everything that was Jewish. They pummeled it to the ground. Jesus warned them. He said, look at this great temple. There won't be one stone left on it. Within 70 years, that's exactly what happened. The generation that actually killed Christ was destroyed and separated and spread out all over the earth. They did not become a nation again until 1948. And so what I want you to see here is even in this, because in, in verse 37, Jesus, you can feel the mourning and the lamenting and the sadness in Jesus' voice just in the way that it's written. Jesus is again expressing not a hatred for them, but a love for them. He, 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 he's calling them home again, even though they killed all the prophets, even though they rejected Christ, even though they're gonna kill Jesus. Jesus still tells them there's hope. In Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Jesus says, you have no idea how loved you are. You have no idea the good things that I desire to do for you and with you. 
You have no idea what the Father has planned for you on the other side of death. You have no idea how good it is to be pulled into the hands of the Father. You have no idea what it is to be a son and a daughter of God. You have no idea how much we love you and how much we wanna pull you to ourselves. But generation after generation after generation, you have been unwilling. And he says, so now, this is your last call, this is your last chance, and they reject him. But then Jesus, in his power and his wisdom, his mercy and his grace, in verse 39, he shares one prophetic truth that gives us so much hope and hope for Israel. It says, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is here referring to an Old Testament passage while also prophesying what will come in the future. Jeremiah prophesies it, Isaiah prophesies it, Zechariah, who he just mentioned, gives a detailed explanation of this. Jesus says that there is gonna come a time though you will be scattered, though you will be left desolate because you killed the Son of God, because you utterly rejected that which was came to save you, so his point is, I'm the one who's come to save you. If you reject me, how can you be saved? And he says, at that point in time, now I think, now this is just me, but I think 4,000 years of mercy is enough. I think 4,000 years of patience is enough. It's hard for me to be patient with my children for four minutes. I think after I send hundreds of prophets and they kill them and I send my own son and he kills them, I think after that, I think the whole world could stand and agree that God would be just in just killing them all. Can we agree that that would be just? But even in that, even in that, after 4,000 years of rejection, from the time Abraham was created all the way to now, is around 4,000 years. And then even at the end, however long that is, Jesus says there's gonna be time for you to still be saved. Zechariah gives us this, and I wanna finish this history out. I want you to see the beauty of this because this gives us a picture of the future. This will also explain to us what's happening right now, what will continue to happen. And in this, we can see the ultimate faithfulness of God. In Zechariah 12, it says the, oh, this is about the end days this is about Israel's positioning at the end days and the armies of the world that surround it and the, ultimately the salvation Christ brings to it. In verse one, it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. So he basically says the world is going to be drunk and intoxicated off of Israel. The world is going to grow tired of Israel. Israel is gonna become front and center and they're gonna to try to destroy them, but in God's preservation, they never are allowed to. But ultimately, because of what we learned last week, because of the antichrist spirit that is at work in the world, ultimately every culture, every nation, every government, and every people group will turn their back on Israel will become so infatuated in a negative way, intoxicated, drunk off of Israel, they will hate Israel, and eventually every nation in the world will send troops together united with the Antichrist to destroy Israel. 
So what that means for us, and I don't wanna get into next week's message. You need to be here for next week's message. You need to listen to next week's message. And I don't wanna get too far into it. But what this means is that Israel's never gonna go away. That the, the Israel's gonna be front and center from this point forward. And that there's always gonna be war connected to Israel and our own country, as if it's not already kinda happening. But every nation and every government in the world will eventually turn its back on Israel and, 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 and it will leave them desolate and it will leave them alone. God will use the evil of the Antichrist, the evil of Satan's plan and the evil of, of this world to ultimately bring Israel back into good graces and salvation. Zechariah continues to tell us, uh, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah. First, the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so God's saying in that last final days, after 4,000 plus years of not just rejection, but utter contempt for God, idolatry, spiritual adultery, murdering his prophets, killing his own son, and condemning the church of Jesus Christ, and condemning the kingdom of heaven, trying to kill the Christians more than any other nation in the beginning. He says, after all of that, to this very day, the house of Israel still rejects their King Jesus. He says, after all of that, in the spirit of the Antichrist unites the world, brings them to their doorstep, and right upon Israel's final destruction, this is what God says that he's gonna do. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, and in that moment, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. God says, I created them. I brought them into existence. And I have desired for thousands of years to be their father, for them to be my children. But they were murderers. They were thieves. They were prostitutes. They worshiped other gods. They gave them and their children over to the flame, to sacrifice to idols like Baal and demonic gods. They committed extreme atrocities. They killed his prophets. They killed his own son. They still reject him. And they will actually put their trust not in Jesus at first, they will actually put their trust in the Antichrist. And then, after it's all said and done, right in that moment of their final destruction, God says, I'll put on them a spirit of grace 
and I'll put on them a spirit of mercy. And in that moment, they will cry out to me. That's what Matthew 24, 23 was talking about. That's what Jesus was saying. You won't see me again until you cry out to me. And in that moment, after 4,000 years, 4,000 plus of rebellion, rejection, murder, evil, sin, rebellion, horrible atrocities, even killing Jesus himself. After all of that, at the end days, as they are surrounded, they will cry out to Jesus. And in that moment of repentance, Jesus will come from heaven to save them both spiritually and physically. And he will pour grace and mercy out upon the people of Israel and he will destroy their enemies and he'll wipe out the Antichrist and all those armies and he will establish his throne now and forever. So the heart of this, I want you to understand that the direction the world is going, it's okay. It's gonna be difficult. At times it's gonna be extreme. But God told us about this all ahead of time. And in the end, he is going to reign supreme in victory as king over the world. But what I want us to see this morning and why my heart has been so heavy is I want us to see, and I felt the Lord placed it on my heart to give a special call this morning. Because in God's relationship with Israel, we see his mercy and his love, his patience and his faithfulness. His mercy never ran out for them and it never will. His love never runs out and it never will. His patience never runs out and it never will. His faithfulness never runs out and it never will. What this means for you and for me and for anybody at home is that no matter where you are or what you've done or how long you've walked away from God or if you never knew him to begin with, the sin in your life is not stronger than the cross, right? Even that secret sin. And I know that there are so many that feel unwanted and abandoned by God. I know there's so many that feel like they've crossed too many lines, they've gone too far, they're too deep, it's too dark, and there's no hope. And what I'm trying to get you to see and what I think Christ wants us to see in the beauty of, of Israel's history is that 4,000 years of murder, rebellion, atrocity, rejection, idolatry, 4,000 years, but God's love never changed. God's promises never changed. God's mercy never changed. God's patience never changed. God's, God's faithfulness never changed. And the second that they cry out to him, he will save them in that very moment. And so if there's anybody in this room, there's anybody at home, or there's anybody that ever listens to this message at some point in your life, and you feel that overwhelming burden, that is the spirit of God calling you to the God who created you and the Christ that died for you. And no matter what is going on in your life, the Bible says when you cry out to God, he hears you and he will save you spiritually and physically. Christ is our king and he is good to us and he has proved his faithfulness.
And so I, I, I want, I, I hope that we could look into this story, we could look into this history, we could look into this and we could see and we could know that there's nothing we could ever do. There's no place we could ever go. There's nothing, a sin we could ever commit that God would be finally done with us. And that if you need him this morning, you left him, but he never left you. You tried to run, but you can't outrun him. And you gave your life over to sin, but you can't outsin his love, his grace, and the cross. Your relationship with him is not dependent upon your faithfulness, it's dependent upon his faithfulness. Jesus loves you, and he has proven that love to you. My hope and my prayer is that you this morning, that you will hear this, you will see the words on the screen, you will see his love and faithfulness, and you will give yourself over to him in every way, shape, and form. He's worthy to be served and he's worthy to be glorified. And there's nothing in this world that is like our King Jesus. And so I, I want us to know, yes, the spiritual reality right now behind Israel is that they have rejected Christ and they are both under the judgment and the preservation of God. And that God will use the evil of the enemy to ultimately bring about the salvation of Israel. But what we can take away from this today and every believer in this room is we need to know that our God is a faithful, faithful, faithful God and that we can trust him at every point and every turn in this life and that when we need him, he is always there and that when we call out to him, he hears and he responds that he is our God and our God is the creator of the universe. Our God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our God is forever with us. And everything that this world throws at us is nothing compared to what he has planned for us. And I wanna end with this one thought, this one thought. When God describes heaven, when, when Christ describes it, when the Bible describes what it'll be like, it simply says, what God has planned for you is far beyond anything you could ever imagine. That's how good it is. And so this is the story of those who are saved. We were evil, we were rebellious. God loved us, God gave us Christ. He laid down his own son so that we could be in a relationship with him. And he did all of that so that we could experience something that is so good we can't even imagine it. Is there a God like our God? No. Is there a goodness like our God's goodness? No. Is there faithfulness like our God's faithfulness? No. So I encourage you this morning, if you don't know him and you feel the spirit of God pulling you towards him, don't miss this moment. And if you do know him, let's worship him and thank him for his faithfulness and his goodness. Let us see him and his relationship with Israel and let that build our faith to know that our God never, ever gives up on us. He's proven that time and time again.